of us, when we first hear <coughs> hear of the Dharma or hear of meditation practice or somehow uh, come in contact with the Dharma, we we hear it as um, something to do to get a certain result. And whatever result you're looking for, whether it's tranquility or stress management or enlightened or some spiritual goodies or whatever it is, there, there seems to be or you're called to, um, to do some kind of, make some kind of effort using some kind of technique to uh, get what you want. And that's usually enough to get us through the first sitting. <laughs> and then we uh, are rudely awakened by the realities of the work ahead. But over the course of you know our efforts and the trial and error and um, techniquing of one sort or another, eventually we settle into um, an understanding, really, that it's not about getting something. It's not about techniquing your way to perfection and succeeding. But rather, it actually becomes, um, you know, if you hang in there long enough, it becomes a lifestyle. It's not that you do a practice, it's that the practice does you. And you, you grow into um, inhabiting uh, whatever amount of faith, uh, energy, wisdom uh, you develop or that results from your efforts. So this transition, you know, there's no timetable for it, but, um, you know, the expected results are always just out of reach. Whatever, whatever you have thought you wanted, by the time you get there, your aspiration has left that spot and has moved ahead, so you have to keep working to uh, pursue your aspiration, which is just beyond your reach. So this, this is a, a trajectory that I've seen in myself, I've seen in others, uh, and so I want to speak about it tonight, and I want to speak about it in terms of the qualities of mind that are most responsible for the um, most responsible for guiding the unfolding of your practice, guiding the unfolding of your commitment, guiding the unfolding of your understanding. And these five factors are called the five spiritual faculties. Now, Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you know, we should consider the uh, practice of meditation and the development of wisdom more like a marathon than a sprint. And I think we get it. <laughs> we get it. It's not, it's not a sprint. It's not something you're going to get in a weekend. And for those of you who've been hanging in there for a year or two, it's not something you're going to get in a year or two. It's, you know, until we make that commitment, until we see the benefit for ourself, and we make that commitment, it is going to take the rest of your, our lives. But it's not because it's, oh my God, it's going to take the rest of my life. It's like, it becomes 
how we are if we practice, if we really take in the practice as a lifestyle rather than just a practice we do. So I want to speak about these five spiritual faculties because they're all active and there are just infinite ways in which they manifest in our lives. So the five faculties are sadha, or faith, usually translated as faith, some kind of confidence. The second is uh, virya, which is energy or effort. The third is mindfulness itself, which is uh, remembering and observing. The fourth is samadhi, or usually translated as concentration, but it means stability of mind, collectedness of mind. And the fifth is panya, wisdom or understanding, self, self-verified self wisdom. The interesting thing about these five faculties is that they start in a very uh, minimal way. And as we work with them, they grow cyclically and they support each other in a cause-effect relationship so that with a little bit of faith or a little bit of confidence, if we're inspired to make a little effort and a little effort results in a little mindfulness, a little mindfulness results in a little collectedness, a little collectedness results in a little understanding and a little understanding results in more faith. And so more faith results in more effort and And this is the way that gradually these five faculties uh, grow in strength, but they only grow to the extent that they're balanced. And mindfulness is the the key to balancing these faculties because it's mindfulness that recognizes, oh, we're out of balance. We have too much faith, not enough understanding, too much energy, not enough concentration. And so it is mindfulness that is the... Uh, queen pin, if you will, the king pin, or the center, uh, which is the the primary um, of the of the five faculties. So what we see is, you know, that in the beginning we use techniques, we make a lot of effort, um, we 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 search for a lot of uh, understanding, and only gradually do we grow into our our own understanding from our own experience uh, to where all of life becomes uh, the field of our uh, Dharma practice or awakening or mindfulness or however you consider uh, the Dharma in your life. So the first factor is sadha. Faith. You know, the interesting thing about faith is it is similar to desire in some ways. Desire, it is said, seeks pleasure. Faith seeks the good. Now, when we say faith seeks the good, we, when we have faith in something or someone, we see something that we apprehend something that uh, calls forth the goodness within ourselves. We feel inspired, we feel confidence, we hear a talk, we read a book, we see a person, 
someone that uh, we feel resonant with. And it sparks some level of confidence in ourselves. Now, the interesting thing, too, about faith is it's not dependent on knowledge. It's not dependent on how many books you read. It, you know, you can watch a sunset and be struck by beauty, awe, magnificence, and feel inspired. Not in a particular direction, but just feel inspired and infused with um, some kind of faith or confidence, joy, uh, a sense of uh, possibility. And the interesting thing, there's a lot of interesting things about faith, (laughs) is that uh, faith clarifies our spiritual objective. When we have faith in the teachings or a teacher, it gives us some clear understanding or path uh, for our aspirations. It may not be a clear practice or decisive uh, commitment, but it's an inspiration. It, it, it's like a spiritual compass. You know, when you hear the teacher that you resonate with, you, you, you feel like, oh, that's the direction I want to go. That's the direction that I've been going, and here is uh, the path ahead. It also gives us uh, the confidence to proceed towards our aspiration. Now, the aspiration may not be very articulate, it may not be very clear, maybe just a hunch, a, a sense of the direction we're going, and yet still we can feel very inspired to pursue what we believe is the path in that direction. Many of you have heard the story of my first retreat, but I just, for those who haven't heard, um, I was living in a commune in central Maine, having survived college somehow, and uh, I was in recovery from education. And uh, we had gathered together in a commune because we were all into the Grateful Dead in Pink Floyd. And so that was our spiritual practice and partaking of a sacrament as often as we needed. And uh, that was, you know, I didn't know any Buddhist. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't have a spiritual interest in anything except the Grateful Dead. And... um, one of the women at the commune got a book, wrote to the author of the book, and he said, well, there's this mindfulness retreat going on in, in central Maine, and we lived in Maine, and it was just a couple-hour drive away, so she said she was going to go to this uh, mindfulness resort. So <laughs> I said, wow, I, I, that'd be great. I'd like to do that, too. And I I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking very well then. <laughs> but I, uh, so we paid a fee and we went to this retreat. It was in the Catholic, old Catholic monastery and it started uh, the day after Thanksgiving <clears throat> on which day we had gone to the Rolling Thunder Review Bob Dylan concert. And <clears throat> so we went to the concert. Next day we went to the retreat. And... It so happened that this retreat that we went to was the last two weeks of the first three-month retreat that Jack Joseph Sherman and another was teaching. 
So we walked into the monastery, and on one side was an empty dining room that said registration would be at five o'clock, and on the right-hand side was the dining, was the the chapel, which was the meditation hall. And on the door of the of the meditation hall was the schedule: four o'clock, wake up, you know, yoga, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, tea, <laughs> sit, walk, seven thirty, talk. Sit, walk, go to bed. We looked at each other and said, uh, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk to each other. <laughs> really what that meant, we get an hour a day to listen to somebody else. <laughs> Nevertheless, we were there, and everybody had been there for two and a half months. There had been 50, there were about 50 people that had been there for two and a half months, and it was cold. They were all wrapped up in blankets, looking at their feet, shuffling around. Nobody would look at you, nobody would talk to you. I thought we were in a morgue. But we were there, so I sat through two weeks of sheer, utter detox hell, leaning against the piano in the back. And it was, you know, the body was just in agony the whole time, and the mind wasn't much better. But I heard these talks every night, and there was something about the talks that I heard them... And as I heard them, I said, this is, the way I, this, is, this is the way I've always thought. This is what I've always believed my whole life. I'd never heard it. I'd never read it. But I just said, that, this is it. I got it. And so I, had, I just had tremendous faith. I just had confidence in these teachers and this practice. I couldn't do the practice, but I had confidence that this was, this was the way to go. And, well, here I am. 40 years later, saying, you know, you have to check out this path here. You have to check out this practice, because it's a good way to go. And I had wondered for many years what happened, uh, because there wasn't a spiritual seeker uh, at all. And I realized that my faith had been awoken, even though I didn't recognize it at the time. I just felt, yay, this is something I want to do. And... Um, in some, in some way, I, n- I never had any doubt. Not, not that I knew what I was doing, or what was involved, or anything. I just had a lot of confidence that this was uh, an effective, and essential, and something that I really resonated with. That's not the only uh, experience of faith. Of course, there have been many other confirming uh, Practice uh, experiences both in practice and in life, but that was the one to get me started. Traditionally, the objects of faith are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I think for me, it was hearing the Dharma and hearing the articulation of the truth or the way things are that I resonated with, even though I didn't particularly identify as a Buddhist, didn't identify as a Buddhist at all, and I didn't know anyone who was practicing the Dharma. But nevertheless, I had enough interest, confidence, faith, to continue. The second of the uh, spiritual faculties, the controlling faculties, is virya, uh, effort or energy. Now, we may have a lot of faith in someone, 
or a practice or a direction in life. But if we don't make any effort, it's just a good idea. It's not, it's not going to manifest at all. But how, what is the spark that gets us to make the effort? We can have faith. We can believe. But without this spark of urgency, we just don't make the effort. And it's said that spiritual urgency is the proximate cause for the arising of faith. Now, what does it mean, spiritual urgency? Well, you may remember the story of the Bodhisattva, the Prince uh, uh, Siddhartha, who lived in his father's palaces or royal households for many years. And due to his karmic potential and momentum, when he was 29, he wandered outside of the realm of his, the reach of his father's influence, it said, and he saw, meaning he understood, oh, when he saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse, he understood deeply, at a spiritual level, that all beings grow old, get sick, and die. And this just provoked in him well, I guess we'd call it, you know, midlife crisis, existential crisis. It awoke in him the, the spiritual journey he'd been on to, for lifetimes, to realize how to reach the end of suffering, how not to suffer these experiences. And when he then saw, in addition to those three, he saw a renunciate, which were prevalent at that, at that time in India. And the renunciate was so calm and so peaceful and so uh, serene that he understood that there was another way to live life than through suffering. Not that the, not that the renunciate didn't grow old, probably get sick and eventually die too, but the serenity of the mind was visible, palpable. And so that was, that was the visual key to the urgency for him to leave home and to, to begin his spiritual practice in that last lifetime. So you might consider your own life, your own being here at the retreat, or how you came to the Dharma. What is it? What? What? Or what, what's so urgent about practicing the Dharma in your life? Or why was it necessary or urgent that you come to this retreat now? Now, some of you have been practicing a long time and it's not like there's this new urgency. Or maybe it's just a continuing urgency. But nevertheless, there has to be some spark, some something to get us out of the complacency, which is so easy to fall into. So this sense of urgency called Samvega, certainly growing older, getting sick, dying, when we, when we, you know that feeling, you know, when someone close to you dies, 
whether it's suddenly or eventually, they die. It just it stops your mind. It stops your mind from its usual chatter. And you just go, what, what is this all about? What happened? Where did they go? And you feel this, you feel this, not just being left alone, or not just sad for that person. We feel something about our own life when we really are close to someone who dies. And one thing we feel is like we see, we get a glimpse of how, well, insignificant uh, or not particularly useful so much of what we do in life is. In the light of our eventual death and impossible immediate death, a lot of our life looks really silly with what we do in life. Silly, a waste of time, frivolous, just dissipating our life energy, doing what? Waiting to die. And yet when it comes, it's like we see. So, in some ways, it's this call to wake up to the fact that you're alive. That we are alive. Whatever it is that says, you're not dead yet. You know, Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda, another one of my spiritual teachers of the last century, to consider death as a, an advisor. Your own death is an advisor. Just, just consider your death is just right here on the shoulder, and it's just advising you. Every time you've got to make a decision, every time you have to kind of really consider what's important in life and how to do, you just turn to your death and say, okay, is this important? Should I really be doing this? Should I be investing this time and energy? Should I get all excited about this? Should I get so depressed about that? And your death will tell you. You haven't died yet. You're still alive. What's important? And it's an important question to ask ourselves frequently. You know, not just when we come to practice, but I like to encourage people to do an inventory frequently of the addicts of our life and just take a look at the behaviors or misbehaviors, uh, friends, beliefs, uh, hobbies, habits that we are still carrying around from when we were teenagers or in our 20s and our 30s, whatever. And sometimes when we look, we just see that there's a lot of baggage there. It isn't, I don't mean to say that it wasn't valuable and important at some point in your life, but it might not be supporting your highest aspiration now. And just that can waken you to, out of this kind of slumber of just kind of carrying your baggage to the grave and wake us up and say, wait a minute, what, what am I doing with my life? Why, why am I still engaged in that behavior? Or why am I still hanging on to that idea about myself, about others, about the world? Why am I still struggling in this way or that way? And if we don't look, if we don't really look at our life with that kind of, it matters, we won't see we won't see. We'll just carry out habitually what's familiar, comfortable, 
and we'll miss the opportunity to uh, make, to, to feel that spark, to make the effort to really move off of this complacent place. Energy, or virya, the second uh, factor, manifests as non-collapse. That means it sustains our effort. It sustains our energy. It sustains our interest. It sustains our faith. Because we're moving forward. We're, we're moving with it. We're not just collapsing into defeat, doubt, uh, fear, uh, ambivalence, indecision, ambiguity, which come, no doubt, they come. But energy, energy is the willingness to recognize that, to recognize these collapsed states of mind. Not just doubt, but all of those. And, you know, it, it can be both a strong support for really severe uh, doubt, indecision, and ambiguity, but also for the slightest, the slightest. And here I like to offer a, uh, a visual teaching. So you're sitting, you know, and it's a 45 minute sitting, and after 35 minutes the body's just kind of, the mind's kind of like, and the body's kind of, and you're sitting there and you're going, ah. That's collapse. That's collapse. That's collapsing energy that just goes, kind of a giving up, a a kind of a lack of engagement, firm engagement with the present moment's experience, whether it's pain in the body or boredom in the mind or restlessness in the mind or, you know, doubt or whatever it is. It's just, you know, in the face of it, we just go, now, I know, we all do that at times. And if we see it, then we can then we can recall, wait a minute. Come back. Stay stay present. Keep going. Ramana Maharshi, great spiritual teacher also, said, No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. So once you know the journey, once you know the direction, once you know the practice, it's just persevering. But I might add, it's patient perseverance. Because the challenge is our habits of being asleep. And so we have to be patient with this constant, this incessant arising of doubt, fear, indecision, lack of energy, boredom, all of the torments that I spoke about last night, that we will be assaulted by them. So we have to be patient with getting really familiar with them, but also persevering in our effort to, well, in this, on this practice, to learn about them to be willing to receive them, engage them, observe them, learn about them, until we know, until we really know them inside out and we're no longer confused by them. Again, 
Carlos Castaneda, in writing about his instruction from Don Juan, he says, Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself strong and clear, complete. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. We have to work. We don't, we don't know how hard we work to make ourselves miserable. We just have to kind of ruminate and worry and think over and over again in the same old familiar way. But because it's so habitual, it doesn't, doesn't look like work. But it, did you ever wonder why you're so tired at the end of the day? Thinking. Thinking is what tires us out. The less you think, the less tired you get. But we're exhausted because we do so much thinking. And a lot of it is, you know, restlessness, worry, anxiety, frustration, endless desires and plans for things that never happen. <clears throat> so now the third controlling faculty is mindfulness itself. And here I want to distinguish, you know, I mentioned earlier in the retreat that most of the retreat and most of the times that I use the word mindfulness and awareness, I use them synonymously. Mindfulness as an activity, awareness as an activity of mind. But I want to distinguish mindfulness tonight, the factor of mind called mindfulness, because it has very specific functions in the activity of awareness. These five faculties operating together is what I call awareness. Because it isn't just mindfulness that we're cultivating. We can't cultivate mindfulness without faith, energy, samadhi, understanding. And so all of them together, as they grow, develop, come into balance, is awareness. One function within that awareness is mindfulness. Because the function of mindfulness is to remember. And I've spoken about it before. It's to remember the present moment. To remember that there is a present moment to be experienced. That we are, basically, it's remembering that you're alive. You know, we think we're alive. You know, that's, an, that's a good idea. But unless we're present for this moment's experience, there's no confirmation of it. We're just lost in some fantasy. We're lost in some memory. We're lost in some plan. Just lost, period. Not even aware of that. So it is the function of mindfulness to remember. Now, did you notice in the, in the morning sittings when we offer instruction, you know, if we say, okay, sit comfortably. Okay, can do that. Okay, now relax the body. Yeah, yeah, can do that. Okay, now remember what you're going to do. Remember to recognize the present moment. Okay, I'm going to remember. Right. Okay, now what's happening? Breathing in. Okay, breathing in. Yeah, breathing out. Okay, breathing out. And then I stop talking. What happens next? Goodbye, <laughs> 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 <To my> mind. <laughs> you know, it just goes away. Because we haven't really internalized this remembering. As long as something or someone is reminding you, Okay, 
It's easy to be. It's easy to observe what they tell you to observe. You know, right now, observe the sensations. Feel the sensations in your right hand. Got it? Can you feel the sensations in your right hand? Yeah, you can. You know, I'm prompting you to do that. Now I'm going to ask you, how much energy did that take? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. All it took was the mental energy to hear what I said, understand what I said, and, and, and do it. Meaning with your mind. Just direct your attention to feel what's going, what, what the sensations are in your head. Now that's all the energy it takes in any one moment. It's mental energy, isn't it? It's not physical energy. It's not about how you're sitting. It's not about the posture. It's not about anything except the mind. So it's remembering to do just that. But it's remembering it from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed or time you fall asleep. And that's what feels hard. It's just the continuity of doing that. But in any one moment, if you remember, it's easy. It's easy. If you remember. And so a lot of the practice in, not just the early years, but early decades, is to remember, is to internalize this instruction. Remember. To recognize the present moment's experience. And then to do just that, but no more than that. It's not to get rid of the present moment, it's not to figure it out, it's not to explain it, it's not to make something happen. There's already something happening. What? And to recognize that. So, mindfulness has this function to remember, but it also has, it manifests as observing. It, once we remember, then it's also mindfulness that sees, or as I was speaking this morning about the seeing, it's actually to, to grok it, <laughs> to, to feel into it, to recognize it, that's perception, but to, to actually know the experience, the present moment. This is mindfulness. Now it's said that strong perception is the proximate cause for mindfulness. Now, perception is the ability to recognize. If something is familiar, and you recognize it, and you clearly recognize it, then it will support being mindful and clearly recognizing the next moment. Now, if you're not clearly aware of what, clearly perceiving what this moment is, the mind has a tendency to drift off before the next moment. So clear perception is the proximate cause for the next moment of mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness. Now, how can we train clear perception? Well, perception is knowing, well, this is in-breath, this is out-breath, this is tingling, this is pressure, this is sadness, this is desire, this is fear, this is jealousy, whatever. It's just clearly recognizing, this is what it is, this is what it is. And we can do that because we know the taste of it. We know the flavor of it. We've experienced jealousy before. We've experienced fear before. We've experienced depression before. And when we can recognize it, we go, got it. I recognize it. <laughs> if it's something that you have never experienced before, 
And what I always talk about is Chico. You know what Chico is? Chico is a fruit. You know, we grow them in Maui. Every Filipino has got them in their backyard. They're about the size of a kiwi. They're kind of brown, fuzzy. But you cut them open and they have a kind of a cinnamon-colored, uh, firm texture inside. they got five little seeds, smaller than almonds, black, shiny. And you, you, you peel the skin and you eat this thing. It is like cinnamon chocolatey mousse. <laughs> it, is, it is so sweet. It is just unbelievable. Now you know what I mean? No, you don't. <laughs> you can't possibly know until you actually taste it. But we have this idea that we know, but we don't really know. So when we come to practice, what we're, you know, we say, well, pay attention to the breath, breathing in, breathing out, and what's going on. If we just think that this is what's going on, that's not clear perception. That's just thinking. And so we actually have to taste with our mind the present moment's experience in that way we can recognize it as familiar. If it's not familiar, we'll go, huh, this must be that Chico he was talking about. <laughs> I've heard about this thing, never had it before, but now I, ah, okay, I'll see. I think this might be it. So we make a notice. We make note of what is distinctive about this experience if we never experienced it before. And when we see it the next time, we'll say, aha, I remember that. I don't have a name for it yet, but I... I remember, I've had that before. I've tasted that before. And after a while, we'll get it confirmed by somebody else. Is that a Chico? Yeah. Is that Nibbana that I just experienced? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. Because, <laughs> you know, hey, we haven't experienced that yet. So. The reason that we sometimes suggest, and there's this technique, of naming your experience or labeling your experience, even something as simple as breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Because when we name our experience, we actually identify it. We, we clearly know, oh, this is it. And it, it, it is a... It helps to clearly perceive the present moment if you can name it. If you can't name it, you may not actually be clearly perceiving it. Now, this is just a tool. It's a technique. It's not the goal of practice. Labeling is not the goal of practice, but it supports clear perception. The times to use labeling are when experience is new or novel, when it's very chaotic and you can't kind of clearly kind of pin down anything, you can't kind of clearly recognize anything, or when the mind is very dull. These are the times to use noting or labeling, because it helps clarify perception. And when there is clear perception or clear recognition moment to moment of what's going on, you don't, you don't need to label, you don't have to name anything, because the clear perception will sustain the momentum of awareness. Now, the hardest thing to understand is how Mindfulness is remembering and observing. Sometimes in our remembering to observe the present moment, we observe something that we've never recognized before. And so we don't have a name for it. But we have an experience of it. 
So I had this experience in, in the monastery, and I mean, I had several times, but the one I want to tell you about is in the monastery. I'd been practicing for 10 years, and I was walking in the backside of the monastery, the hallway where I was living. And one afternoon, I remember I was walking in the direction towards the toilet, and where I just turn around, come back, and walk back. Walk. And I recognized this state of mind that I'd never seen before. I, I said, huh, what's that? It's like, because, and I recognized it because I was walking and I collapsed. Energy, energetic collapse, just went. And I go, why did I do that? So I was just walking again. I got my energy back and I was walking again. And after a while it went, uh, again. I said, what the heck is going on? So I started paying really close attention and I saw that there was something go through my mind and I would just feel defeated in my efforts to be mindful. And I go, huh. And as I paid close attention to it, I heard this voice, my, my inner voice, my, the way I was articulating what was going on was, oh poor me, oh poor me, oh poor me, I can't do this. Huh, okay, step, step, step. Oh poor me, I, I can't do this. Okay. okay, what's going on? So, I realized that this was, oh poor me, I can't do this because too old, I'm too stupid, I'm started too late in life, uh, it's impossible, it's for far, it's for Burmese people, it's not for me, I'm not a Buddhist anyway, you know, whatever. There was just all kinds of, well, explanations why I couldn't do this. But it was actually the feeling of self-pity. I can't do it. And once I saw that, I got really interested in because I'd never seen it before. I, I was still young. I'm younger than I am now. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you're young, you know, you have a lot of confidence, you have a lot of naivete, you have a lot of uh, hopes and aspirations that are totally unrealistic, and you just kind of, you think you can do anything. And that's, that's the way I was. I was very confident, probably very arrogant, actually. But nevertheless, I didn't, I wasn't self-pitying. I never saw it. So it surprised me that I had this kind of voice in my mind. But once I recognized it and started watching it, started really paying close attention, every time it arose, now I have to be careful how I say this, I wasn't aversive to it. It wasn't like I saw it battled out of the way. It was like I saw it and I go, there it is, there, there it is again, there it is again. And as soon as I saw it, of course, it didn't take me with it. It just... I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. And for, you know, some weeks or months, I don't know, I can't remember how long, it was any time it arose, I was right there. Because I was really interested in it, really heightened my interest. And after some period of time, I didn't see it. And I haven't seen it since. I haven't seen it since. And that doesn't mean that there hasn't been lots of opportunities to feel a lot of self-pity. It's just that it doesn't arise. It just doesn't, it doesn't have, I don't have enough delusion or blindness around it. I see it. So, this is the process of self-discovery. This is, this is what we, what we will discover. This is how we, how mindfulness discovers who and what we really are. 
there's this quality of mind that accompanies uh, mindfulness. Every moment of mindfulness is accompanied by another mental factor called ujjukata. Ujjukata means straightness of mind, meaning your mind doesn't spin any story about what's being experienced. It sees it just as it is. No deception, no lie. Mindfulness doesn't lie. Mindfulness goes, that's the way it is. So this straightness of mind holds us to the facts, well, in this case, of self-pity. It didn't let me spin it out. It didn't let me believe the story that self-pity wanted to tell me. I just saw it. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. So this is, this is how mindfulness discovers, recovers uh, our conditioning. Our conditioning. So much has happened to us in the past that we don't remember. But it has had a profound and enduring effect upon us and upon how we view ourselves how we understand ourselves. And the habits of mind, the mental, emotional habits of mind that we have, have been learned. We've learned them from experiences in life. And yet we don't remember learning. And they feel like they're part. I spoke about them last night. Whether yours is fear or anxiety or panic or depression, we learn this. Yes, there may be genetic uh, predispositions. There may be chemical imbalance in the in the mind system that, that predisposes us this way or that way. But we still learn and in, and kind of indulge in through lack of awareness these reactive states of mind. And the source of them is well hidden in our personal history. So much of much of the early years of, of practice is a personal history review. Because where there is tension in the mind, there's pain, there's suffering. And this practice is really good at exposing suffering. And we'll find it. It'll come into view. So you want to pray, you want to pray for, you want to aspire to uh, find a teacher that will <coughs> encourage you to practice in a way that you will allow you to discover your suffering. Upandita was like that. It wasn't that he was uncompassionate. He just didn't... He knew, he knew the mind. He just knows that there's a lot of suffering in the mind. We don't see it. We don't see it. We're living happy, happy-go-lucky, just kind of ignoring it. Blithely just kind of moving along, hoping that it doesn't catch up with us. But he, he has a way of encouraging or demanding that you practice in a way that you can't help but expose... It, that practice will expose your suffering. And then you can do something about it. But until you know what your flavor of suffering is, you can't do anything about it. You don't even know what's happening. And so, a good teacher for you is one that makes you, well, suffer. I mean, you know, uh, willingly, you choose to because you want to wake up. <clears throat> So really, when you, when you think of what compassion means, compassion means 
to feel other suffering and to <coughs> respond in a way that will hopefully relieve their suffering. I consider Upandita tremendously compassionate because he knows there's suffering in the mind. And he offers you the tool, the guidance, the understanding to expose that suffering so you can learn to let go of it. And when you let go of that suffering, you don't suffer anymore. That's the most compassionate thing that someone could offer you. The tools to stop suffering. Yes, it's nice to have a soft velvet, you know, gloved hand kind of stroke here when you get really bent out of shape. But, but that doesn't give you the understanding to actually let go of the source of your suffering. Now, I have to also say that mindfulness is not a matter of personal capability. Mindfulness is a functional activity of the mind. It can be trained just like anything else can be trained. We can train in aversion, we can train in fear, or we can train in mindfulness. It's up to us. And so, it's not like some people got it and some people don't. Everybody's got the potential. But it takes training. With this training in awareness, then with some, with some luck, with some skill, with some continuity of mindfulness, we collect the mind. Now you know, the mind wanders all over the place. There's a, there's a Dhammapada saying in the Buddha that says, uh, the mind is swift and... Swift. The mind is really quick and swift and it can go anywhere at any time. Do you doubt that? That mind can go anywhere at any time. And you can't stop it. You can't stop it. You know, no matter how much you try to control your mind, you cannot. But you can train yourself to see where it goes and not indulge. That's what we're doing. Mindfulness does just that. And as we... As the ability to remember and the ability to observe gathers momentum moment after moment after moment after moment, we can see that the mind doesn't have the opportunity to go wandering off. Because we see, we remember and 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 observe, remember and observe, remember and observe, remember and feel, remember, remember, be here, be here, be here, be here. We're here. And the more consistently or continuously we're here, the more collected the mind becomes. You know when you, you, know when you, get, a, um, you get a new catalog in the mail? You know, you get this catalog from L.L. Bean or whatever, whatever your particular flavor of catalog shopping is. You get this catalog, and here comes a book you've never seen before. It's got a hundred pages of things you've never needed <laughs> until you look at the page. So now what happens is you get this book, and you just say, oh, wow, I wonder what's in here. And every page you look at, there's, you know, six or eight things. And your mind goes quickly scanning. Yes, no, 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 maybe, yes, no, yes. You know, by the time you get done 100 pages and you've looked at 500 different items and you've made 500 decisions, yes, no, or maybe, your mind is totally dispersed. You have, you have no strength of mind to really understand where you're coming from because it's all tied up in all these objects that you've given it to. So just to get out of the just to get out of the dilemma, you buy something. <laughs> 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 you 
Okay, I got that done. Throw the catalog away. But until you buy something, or until you decisively say, no, I don't need anything, you can't throw that catalog away. Because your mind is in it. Your mind is, little piece of your mind is stuck on every object that you've looked at and considered. So your mind is totally dispersed. You have no strength of mind for understanding what's going on. So mindfulness is just the opposite of that. It's like you don't send your mind out to the objects. You keep your mind here and pay attention to what's going on here, recognizing this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. And so the mind gets collected. And the strong mind... i got to tell you another story. <laughs> Practicing with Upandita the first time. He heard my name was Steve Armstrong. So he got a big kick. He didn't speak much English then. He got a big kick. Every time I would come to see him for an interview, he'd say, hmm, and I'd do my bows. And I'd, hmm, mind strong. Mind strong. Is your mind strong today? <laughs> and I'd think, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> is, my, is my mind strong? It's like body odor. Is your body odor strong? <laughs> is your mind strong? <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. Now I do. It's, is your mind strong enough to resist getting entangled in everything out there? All your thoughts, all your ca- the catalog of opportunities to distract yourself. That's a strong mind. The strong mind is one that stays here. It's not that you don't experience life. You experience it, but you don't go get entangled in it. You stay here. That is called samadhi. When the mind stays home, it's called samadhi. The mind is continuous, more continuously mindful. To samadhi is really a reflection of the continuity of remembering and observing. The, the continuity of mindfulness determines the degree of samadhi. Samadhi is, well, when the mind stays here, it isn't wandering in doubt or desire or aversion or fear or sloth and torpor or anything. It's not wandering. So the non-wandering mind is the mind that's secluded from the torments. That's the definition of samadhi. Collected, concentrated, stable. However you... Different teachers use different words. Sairotejaniya uses stability of mind. It's not that the mind isn't taking notice of all the objects that appear moment to moment. The mind notices, but it's not getting entangled in them with some tormented relationship of desiring it, averse to it, fearing it, depressed about it. It just sees. This is the object. No entangled relationship with the experience. This is samadhi. It sounds like, when we say concentration of mind, it sounds like we have to take the mind like an orange. You know, you squeeze the orange, you get the juice out of it, and you get the concentrated flavor. So you take the mind and you squeeze the juice out of it and you get a concentrated mind. No, you don't. You get a headache. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Always want to be prepared for unexpected. <laughs> so, what is the concentrated mind? The concentrated mind is the mind that is continuously mindful, present. It's not that we squeeze the mind into some little object or focus on some narrow little thing. It's that we don't let the mind, 
escape into into entangled relationships with objects. So concentration is really not a very good word. It's not an accurate word. Really what we're talking about is the stability of the mind. The mind stays stable in the present moment, moment after moment. The proximate cause for stability of mind is sukha. Sukha is happy comfort of mind and body. So, the instructions say, sit comfortably. Release your mind from any grip or any attitude of mind that's demanding or expecting. Release the mind. Let the mind be happy. Let the body be comfortable. This is the proximate cause for stability of mind. Not striving, not trying, not, you know, gritting your teeth and fur on your brow and clenching your fists and focusing. That's not, that's not happy comfort of mind and body. So when you think of, you know, when you're struggling, when you find yourself struggling, or you feel like you're not very concentrated, I hear this a lot, I'm not very concentrated. Yeah, and so we try harder. Actually, we should relax. Relax the body. Release the mind from the grip or whatever you think you're supposed to be doing. And just observe. But because we get entangled in, you know, trying too hard, that, you know, then we say, I'm not very concentrated. That's right, you're not very concentrated. But trying harder is not the way to, to, to stabilize the mind. It's to relax. To release the mind from this demanding task of whatever it is that you're asking it to do. With the collected mind, continuity of mindfulness, we see. It's like the mind becomes more powerful, like a telescope or like a magnifying, like a magnifying lens. It takes in everything. You just get closer, you get more intimate with the moment's experience. And when we're more intimate or when we're closer to it, we see more details. We, underst- we see more and when we see more, we understand more. So if you want to really deeply understand something, you just pay attention to it. You just look. Look. Look again. Look at the most familiar thing. Look at it again and again and again and again. And eventually we come to understand, not just see it, not just observe it, but we come to understand its nature. So imagine, now I haven't seen any deer here or any raccoons here this year, but... Often there are deer around here, or there are raccoons that are hanging out at the compost pile. And, and, you know, if you want to understand how raccoons, the nature of raccoon mind, you just watch. You don't, have to, you don't have to think about it, you just watch. You just sit there by the compost pile and watch them. How they eat and what they eat and look around and how they sit on the legs and how they pick things up and how they scurry around, how they snipe at each other and, you know. You're not thinking about it. You're not trying to figure anything out. You're just watching. If you just observe those, those, those raccoons for a couple of hours, you'll begin to really understand the nature of raccoon. Right? Understanding is different than observation. Observing is just seeing the way things are or hearing or feeling into the way things are. But understanding comes because we have observed enough that the mind puts together an understanding same with this, this observing this mind and body. 
We're just observing. We're not trying to figure it out. We're not trying to explain it. We're not trying to analyze it. As we collect more information from observing, we will begin to understand its nature. The nature of the mind, the nature of these mental states, the nature of the body, the nature of the relationship between the mind and the body. This is where insight comes from. We get these, aha, now I get it, moments about understanding the mind, understanding the mind-body relationship. This is insight. This is wisdom. This is knowledge that is gained from direct personal experience. This is wisdom. Wisdom is not the knowledge gained from reading a book. That's knowledge. That's somebody else's wisdom. But it's from reading your own book, reading the book of your own body, reading the book of your own mind, if you will, that we get this understanding that is unique to us, to each one of us. And with this understanding, we can't help but feel re-inspired, more inspired, more faith, more confident, and the cycle continues. The cyclic cycle of cause and effect. More wisdom, more faith, more faith, more energy, more energy, more mindfulness, more mindfulness, more samadhi, more samadhi, more understanding, wise understanding. And in this way, gradually and cyclically, these five faculties develop and they're brought into balance. While we may start with a technique, we start with a practice. We start with an idea of the experience we want as a result. In time, you can see that this process of cultivating these five faculties and gradually growing and understanding gains a momentum of its own. And we see that there really is no end. There's no end to faith. There's no end to energy. There's no end to the continuity of mindfulness. And there's no end to the development of wisdom. Whatever wisdom you've acquired from your practice today is just support for more faith and the further development of more wisdom. That's why we can see that our aspiration always outpaces our understanding. We can never catch up with it. It doesn't mean that we're not satisfied. It just means that we understand that there's room for improvement. There's more wisdom to be gained in the next moment. But at some point, we, we are confident of the path. We're confident that this is the way it happens. We see the effects. We, we, we live with the benefit. We get the benefit. And it's not an experience. The benefit is a lifestyle of well-being. It's understanding that, yes, I can practice this way, and there'll be ups and downs, and there'll be pain and sorrow, and there'll be pleasure and pain, and there'll be all the usual experiences but that doesn't shake our sense of well-being. This understanding comes from practice. This is when our practice gets mature. That we're not looking, we're not practicing for an experience. But we're practicing because we understand that it it leads to and it strengthens our sense of well-being. Even if what we're paying attention to is painful, confusing. Ultimately, we understand this is supporting our well-being. So let's let the words quiet down.